everyone, Duncan Fletcher, back for another round of the PADS Athlete Development Podcast Series. Our next guest has a very interesting background, a former professional hockey player who is currently a licensed clinical mental health counselor in North Carolina. Our next guest played 15 years of professional hockey with the Toronto Maple Leafs, Carolina Hurricanes, Winnipeg Jets, and Chicago Blackhawks. He was also fortunate enough to represent Canada multiple times in international play. While actively playing professional hockey, he completed his BA in psychology and his MS in clinical psychology. Upon completion of his professional hockey career, he completed his clinical residency in counseling, specializing in the treatment of PTSD, and finished his doctoral studies in performance psychology. His experience as an elite athlete and his current work with high-performing professionals in sport and industry allows our next guest to contribute a distinctive perspective on mental health, well-being, and performance. I hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Jay Harrison. Let's jump into it. Hi, everyone. Duncan Fletcher here, back for another podcast with our Athlete Development Podcast Series. I'm here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. How are you doing, Stephanie? Doing well. Excited for another part of our series. We have a very, very special guest today. Absolutely. Super fortunate to have uh, with us a former prof- professional hockey player, currently, uh, and we've already gone off the rails here in terms of where I was going to introduce <laughs> that, so we're going to have to edit that out. Uh, <laughs> Very fortunate to have with us today, uh, Dr. Jay Harrison. Jay, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, my privilege. Thanks, Duncan and Stephanie. Nice to be with you guys. So I'll tell you what, Jay, why don't we just dive right into this? Uh, obviously, you, you, know, you recently uh, knocked out your PhD, which is fantastic. But I think before we kind of get into the research you're doing and the academic path that you took, I think it's a sort of important to understand your background. Maybe you could talk a little bit about your, your playing career because uh, you actually played professional hockey for uh, about 15 years. Yeah, it really is. It's the place to start um, because, you know, I think in many ways, my, my hockey career was the beginning, you know, of my, my career into research and, and into psychology and uh, athlete development and, and therapy and all that stuff. So I think it's, it's truly the, the, the impetus of the whole journey is um, my professional experience as an athlete, as, as a player, as a person. Uh, you know, started, uh, you know, with those dreams and aspirations of playing professionally at a very young age, a classic Canadian hockey story uh, growing up, live, eat, sleep, breathe the game, um, you know, ended up having a lot of potential and recognized at a young age for that potential and started to acclimate and fulfill that through my early adolescence and um, developed into a prospect. I was drafted to the National Hockey League, um, met some adversity along the way. It's a tough league to make. I'm sure if Everybody always knows that, and not every 14, 15-year-old kid really knows how difficult a league it is to make, uh, but it is. Uh, so dealt with some adversity in, in finding my way, finding my place, finding my game. Um, you know, not the most easiest path, I would say. Uh, like, as I said, a lot of challenges, both from a development perspective, but also from a, you know, a well-being and personal experience, looking back. Uh, some very difficult days as a professional athlete. Um, some long, introspective moments, at least for me. Uh, one of the things that distincts my, my career and my journey as I moved through, you know, the minors and progressed eventually to play uh, regularly in the National Hockey League was very early in my career, I invest, started to invest in, in academics and using education. Uh, I always liked school. I liked, you know, doing well in school. I enjoyed the process of learning. 
And, you know, it wasn't, you know, some magical foresight of, you know, I'm a dual career athlete. It was, you know, I'm, I'm going to need this one day. It was very practical. Uh, I wasn't sure how long they were going to let me play. Um, but one thing led to another and it started really investing and it became, became this hunger and this passion and desire to learn more and, and uh, accomplish more, to formalize more through my education. And rather than seeing that as very commonly most athletes, you know, or people in the sports world tend to see is, oh, it's a plan B, he's hedging his bets, um, he must be planning for something, he must see the writing on the wall. I actually started to see it quite differently. I actually found that, you know, as I reflected on what was happening here, this dynamic between, you know, really passionate and excited about learning, talking to team docs, going out, exploring the world. Um, and then playing sports as well, I started to see it. I didn't see it as a distraction or something that took away from my athletic self uh, or performance. I saw it as actually a performance enhancing uh, tool. And it was really a big part of my resilience, especially as you know, I grew and matured through the game as the professionalization of the game takes hold of you, it really becomes a job in many ways and how you compartmentalize what happens at work on the, at the rink, you know, uh, in sport and then how you come home with a young family and things like that. So. I found my academics actually was a huge resilience factor in my life, whether I played well or I played poorly. I had something else that I had, you know, a strong sense of control uh, and self-efficacy about and something that I actually could feel good about. So it mitigated a lot of that negative experience of the game for me very quickly because uh, my entire trajectory as a person wasn't solely tied to the game. I certainly invested a great deal in that and valued it and wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. I was still the very much the most important part of that you know, career identity self, but I was able to, to use other avenues to help support and buffer some of the stresses that commonly come along with it. So that was really the, the impetus of this. And it started to impact some other players as well. Um, so, you know, my degree naturally, I was interested in, you know, in, in things like, you know, medicine and it turned into psychology, more the study of people and understanding why and how and development and things like that. And I started to see it influence people in, in the locker room, the dressing room around me. Um, they were inspired by it. They thought it was interesting and cool. How can that happen? Uh, how can you do two things at once? So um, it started to have a little bit of a leadership uh, and mentorship aspect to it as well, which further uh, evolved my athletic identity and who I was as a leader in the locker room and the role I took in the lives of my teammates and how I supported them. Uh, so it ultimately led, as I said, as a, as a student, I kept going and kept playing. <laughs> surprise, surprise. I, I invested more and more in these academics and my career took off. Uh, I started to play at the higher levels and, you know, they ended up letting me stay for a long time. Well, that's kind of interesting, right? Because I think, you know, for most people, they think that there's a trajectory, you know, you're, you're in the minors only for a few years, but you served in the American Hockey League, which is the equivalent of AAA for those folks that don't know, don't know hockey for, I believe, it was six or seven years before you became a regular in the National League. And as you were going through your, your experience in the minors is when you really kind of invested in your, your education or, or pursuing that. Is, that. is that accurate? Yeah, it, it is. Like I said, it wasn't, you know, some you know, profound moment that I was going to be this dual career athlete. It actually was practical in that maybe I need to actually start preparing. Uh, but once my environment wasn't really giving me that anymore, I had far more trajectory, had like far more career left in me and potential. I didn't walk away from the academics. I saw it as, as something that I continued. It actually leaned into even more once I achieved the highest level, which sometimes threw, threw people off. Not gonna lie to you, I did get a lot of sideways looks at times going against the culture a little bit. Um, but I had actually a player reflect to me and I never looked at it like this before. I didn't particularly see myself as a confident person. 
uh, certainly wasn't in my game any stretch if you saw me handle the puck. Um, but I was just talking to the former teammate. I was, I was speaking to their company, um, and he reflected on you know me coming on the bus or coming on the plane with my books, and you know I'm a fiddle player too, uh, so I would always take my fiddle with me on the road. Uh, and he's like, I couldn't believe the amount of confidence that man must have had to walk on a plane with that stuff and do that. And I never really looked at it that way, but it does speak to the impact and how different it was at the time. Certainly people, some people didn't receive it very well. They weren't really impressed. Like, why don't you just be a hockey player? Uh, and, you know, perhaps that probably got me the most angry out of anything in the game and uh, created, a, I, I would end up ultimately pushing back against that and defending, you know, this, this actually makes me a, a good player. This actually fulfills my, my athletic potential. So, you know, usually once people heard that, they recognized the arrogance of their statement and kind of how, you know, uh, stereotypical labeling it was, um, and usually apologized, which was, which was nice. But again, it opened up the, the horizons. And I saw that performance bump, I think is what we're kind of getting to is that uh, just because I had reached that, that level of performance, I would say arguably my academics reached another level of performance as well. And there was a, like a knock-on effect that the better I played, you know, the, the better I felt, the more energy I had. Uh, so it was really snowballing for me to a point where I left the game with the academic portion of my, my clinical master's finished. Um, so I had a clinical residency for a year after that. And uh, the rest is history, moved into a, a research degree as well. But I really emphasize and focus on the applied side now uh, is how do I continue that journey of supporting athletes, my peers, uh, you know, to live their best lives through their sport, not sacrifice their best lives to be athletes. It's as simple uh, and cheesy as that. Jay, just a follow-up to kind of what you've been sharing with us um, from the, the lens of an athlete development specialist. You said something that resonated with me about the plan B. That's often the language that is utilized, that we want to ensure that there is a plan B should something happen in, in the athlete's sport. What is a way to change the dialogue that athlete development specialists have with players so it resonates with them that this can enhance your performance, this can potentially um, add longevity to your career because often the, the athlete might see this is going to get in the way. This is going to take away from my performance. I need to focus. I don't want to think about plan B. I want to think about playing right now. So just, you know, given you went through it and, and you probably, you said you've got some looks, what are some tools, techniques, words of advice that athlete development specialists could share with athletes when they're sitting down engaging in, in conversation to go back to school or to get a higher um, degree of higher education. Yeah, it's, it is, it's, it's really funny because it's like when, you know, language that means well actually still supports the problem. It's very, it's very similar to stigma in that way. Like saying, well, you shouldn't have stigma just reinforces people's stigma. Usually you're telling someone they should have a plan B, especially athletes really reinforces why they need to focus on plan A right now. <laughs> um, and it has a counter counterproductive effect. And it's even in the research we see, you know, athletes, they do acknowledge that, yeah, I'm going to need one, but it's not really high on my priority list right now. The need is high and the demand is low. So what we have to do is shift that conversation right now. It's really in a lot of, of sports culture seen as a zero sum game, right? To, to, to fill up column B, I need to borrow from column A. I need, you know, there's a limited or finite amount of resources that I can invest in any areas of my life. Um, and as we'll get, get to my research is that what, that may, may be true, but you actually have far more energy to disperse than you probably think. 
as far as how you split it across those different priorities, A, B, even C, and D, um, that we can pretty conclusively say that investing for later pays now. Uh, is kind of the, the the financial aspect, you know, an analogy we use that resonates with players. And it's the equivalent of, you know, talking in the language we use, we talk about things like estate planning. Like you don't ask someone if they will, have you bought your casket yet? Well, no, I haven't. And I'm not going to. Thank you for asking. But do you have your, you know, your, your financial planning, your estate planning, or your tax shelving? And you move to this like, oh, yeah, that stuff makes a lot of sense. And it pays now because I'm making money. Um, same idea is that how can we support your performance through other indirect avenues, right? You're doing everything you can on the ice or on the field. You're doing everything in the gym. You're using your mental skills, health coach, whatever. You're doing your X's and O's stuff. Um, what else are you doing in your life to put yourself in the best position to come to the sport and be your best, right? Oftentimes, athletes, you know, we, we talk, especially at the professional level, don't take your crap home with you. Right. Leave the game at the field. Leave the game at the rink. I flip that on my athletes. I say, what good things are you taking with you to the rink? What have you done away from the rink that's going to put you in the best place to be the most elite athlete you can be? Right. And usually there isn't much that they're taking that they feel good about. Right. So it's, it's finding that. And for me, it was education. It doesn't have to be education. Uh, I've heard so many of my stories, not unique. I've heard several athletes talk about being involved in small business, like something they started with, with their brother or with their mom or with their friend, clothing company. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard the guys like starting like a surfboard company. Um, you know, it could be education. It could be philanthropic. Uh, as long as you have something that, it, that increases that sense of, of permanence for yourself, right? And that's where we see the, the increase in that, that well-being, right? That mental, that thinking and feeling optimistically and positively about oneself and that's how we buffer the ups and downs of the game and the stress. So what you're really doing is acquiring resources, right? You think about pooling that psychological capital, that resilience capital, uh, that the game has a tendency and natural propensity to peck away at pretty easily, right? So the more resources that you can stockpile, uh, the more effective you're going to be against that. So looking at this as a strategy to tolerate those ups and downs, and I think that's a real way to connect with athletes. I know for me, I'd sit on the porch, you know, first week of September, and I would know that no matter how good this season is going to go, there are going to be some horrible times. There are going to be the lowest of the lows where, uh, you know, you've been knocked down and it's hard to get up. And that's the best year that you could possibly imagine. You still have to acknowledge that. So what else can you do in your life to help mitigate that when things are, are, are going that way? What else can you feel optimistic and positive and value about yourself that isn't directly related to yourself or even your team's performance. So it's kind of a shift, you know, shift the perspective and flip the script a little bit on them rather than saying, you know, you, you better do this because something bad's going to happen. How about we do this to make something good happen? And I think that's, that's so important to share and so valuable, um, you know, just changing your vocabulary, the narrative um, allows the individual's mind to shift and think of it from a proactive, positive standpoint, as opposed to a reactive, negative perspective. Yeah, I, you know, I, I kind of go back to like when you read all the amazing sports stories. I think kind of the idea, of the identity of being an athlete, somewhat shifted, especially for young people these days. Like being an athlete is an excuse not to do anything else. And you know, if you look at the old days, like you know, uh, you know. You look, read Boys in the Boat or something like that, a story like that, like, you know, they were 
everything else plus an athlete, right? Like the athlete part was almost, you know, the burdensome, it was the gift that they got to do when everything else was done. And they didn't forgo their responsibilities, right? It actually made their life more difficult for the better, right? So what else can you do? Being an athlete, you know, enhances you and gives you the opportunity to do more, do more with yourself. That's the gift of being an elite athlete at a young age through college and even into professional. It elevates your ability to have impact on the world around you. Um, so, you know, embracing that aspect and, and, and using sport as that platform and that vehicle to, to acclimate your fullest potential is really that mindset that gets me excited uh, when I think about athletes, because as you start to meet them, you hear their stories, right? You hear the stories of adversity, of perseverance, of, of talent. You hear, them, you hear the stories of grit. Um, you know, you hear all of these, these amazing things, the sacrifice that happens in an athlete around them for them just to be themselves and get to where they are. Uh, some of the stories you hear about parents and families and extended families and communities contributing to the development of people. Um, it becomes very inspiring. And how can we use that and leverage that for not only the individual's uh, benefit, but societies as well? I think one of the things I, I quickly wanted to follow up with you on, Jay, which I think is interesting, is that you had talked about as you were going through the process of you know, acquiring these resources through education. And, and, and I love that terminology of you know, acquisition of resources you know, to deal with sort of the ins and outs of the game and, and then investing for later pays now. But when you were talking about the adversity that you faced in terms of how people were viewing you as, uh, as a guy who was involved in, you know, music and, and, and academics, I'm curious, it sounds like your teammates saw you almost in a leadership role, but was the pushback coming from coaches, the GM? I'm just curious, sort of where did you find that, that blowback? And, and do you think that the game is changing or professional sports is changing more to be more open to that kind of approach. Yeah, yeah I, I want to be very, very mindful. I mean, it, I, I face some pushback. I wouldn't say some, you know, there's a lot of adversity that athletes are going through that, you know, is, is real adversity compared to my experience. Um, but yes, it is, I like to call it, I tend to see in sports from my experience, the, the stigma and stereotypes related to sport are actually handed from the top down. Uh, I don't hear a ton of stigma, you know, whether it's related to mental health or, or athlete development athletes saying it to each other athletes are actually you know or, or thinking somehow that oh well because i'm an athlete i can't have a mental health issue or i, I have to only be an athlete or it's not manly to cry or, or whatever you don't hear that and they don't really propagate that the, the stigma comes from someone's going to use it against me you know that's you know that's the, the the cultural change that needs to happen from the top down and um and, and and for me that's where i see how a lot of these things tend to be propagated and the fear of um, it being used against you and being misinterpreted and mislabeled and uh, something, again, I've seen not only as a, I've seen as a player, but now as, you know, a clinician and practitioner talking to players, you see a unique aspect of it uh, that is completely misperceived or misattributed to not, you know, going with the flow of the culture being slightly different, right? And it's, it's misattributed to, you know, not fitting in, not getting it, not being a good teammate. Uh, when in fact it simply represents a total gap in understanding the individuality of the person, um, and you know something I continue to work towards. You know, finding new ways to how players can be empowered to communicate their differences in a way that respects who they are um, and also serves their development within a culture and a, and a framework of, of professional sports. So, um, yeah, I definitely think it, it is. A, it tends to be a top-down. Um, and some, you know, rewiring certainly needs to be done at the top of, of elite sports. Um, they have different incentives, though, and, and they have a different experience as well. 
um, to to what brings them to the game and why they why they're involved in the game as well. So and, and it is changing. It's it's not to say that it is a static environment. There is an incredible amount of movement um, to consider the whole athlete uh, and not just create an environment that optimizes performance in a very isolated aspect of their life, but how do we support living their best lives? I spoke with a, with a baseball executive yesterday and his number one job is what resources can I give these people to live their life well? Um, so you can definitely see the shift. It ha- happy, healthy athletes perform better. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think it's obvious, but not always. Some think the opposite. And I think that's a great segue, obviously, into this idea that your interest and your, your, your hobbies and, and your pursuits away from the game instead of being used against you, they can actually potentially serve to enhance your performance, as you've kind of already alluded to. And then your research, to a certain extent, began to look at that in terms of the approach of, um, of enhancing well-being amongst professional athletes can actually improve their performance. So I think I'd love to learn a little bit more about your research, your how you approached it. Uh, and I think what's really interesting about it for the folks that are listening is that this is one of the few studies that looks exclusively at uh, major professional athletes. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your research, your approach, and, and what your findings were. Yeah. So as I said, my, my research journey started when I was playing. Uh, and you know, then it, it worked into me asking more, more questions and gaining anecdotal uh, you know, stories from other players who shared similar experiences. So you know, I thought what led me to the, to the research approach uh, in taking on a, a doctoral uh, journey uh, was well, what can we do to demonstrate this? Maybe there's something we can add here to the literature that can support some of the things we've been talking about. How can we have some real data to support that? Hey, it's just not a feel-good thing that you know to say a rising tide raises all boats, and you know investing for later pays now. You know, go get them because it, it sounds great, and, and you hope athletes will buy it. Uh, we need data to support that, and I, and I wanted to see if that flushed out, especially at the professional level, because you know it's it's an under under researched you know, group of people to begin with, especially in North America. They're very protected for good reason. Uh, we don't know a ton about them. Um, but, but with that, you know, there's, there's a number of aspects of professional athletes that isn't that different from the college experience. I mean, the average professional career is only, what, three to five years. So instead of leaving their sport at, you know, at 22, 23, they're leaving at 26, 27. Um, there, there's not that much different. They're facing similar transitions, but then they have a whole bunch of other different unique aspects as far as how invested they are in the career vocational component. Anyway, uh, I wanted to st- study exclusively on, on professional athletes because that was my focus and that's who I you know, ultimately you know, worked with and wanted to create the biggest impact for. And I wanted to, to see if there was a relationship really between that athlete identity, career engagement behaviors, and mental well-being. I wanted to see what, what happens to ind- individuals you know, and how do these relate to each other? What can we even predict? Uh, there is some calls in the literature to, to examine the predictive uh, nature of things like athletic identity and negative, uh, negative psychological health outcomes and how we may be able to better predict and, pl- and plan for those and mitigate some of those risks. But also, mental health and career development have never really been looked at together. Uh, they've been consistently uh, researched along two separate lines of inquiry and never really considered what the relationship between them might be. So the idea was to see is, can we actually uncover and, and observe a relationship between professional athletes, athletic identity, career engagement behaviors, and their mental well-being? Um, and that really grounded this whole you know, idea of how we expand the literature as it pertains to the holistic athlete career theory 
you know, we talk about a lot uh, in our athlete development circles, you know, Lavalie's work on career enhancement, uh, you know, behaviors, you know, in our performance enhancing. Uh, he's been able to document and demonstrate that relationship in professional sports as well. So I thought it was a, a natural movement towards now, is there a relationship there? And what can we learn about that relationship? Just observationally now, we certainly, uh, you know, directionally is always difficult, but now we can at least see what the trends are and how much variability we see in those, those particular constructs and how they might relate to, as you asked, Stephanie, you know, how does this inform our athlete development specialists when they're engaging athletes? What's the talking points? What's the narrative now? How do we orient athletes with meaningful data to engage in something that not only pays later, but can also pay now, which is somewhat of a new concept for them to even consider. So as you were going through the process of, of putting together this project, um, obviously, like you said, you wanted to have this emphasis on professional athletes. I'm just curious, how did you go about recruiting guys to participate? Uh, and what was their openness to doing it out of curiosity? So, yeah, that was one of the you know, challenging aspects of this research is like, well, professional athletes are a difficult to reach population. Uh-huh. So what are you going to do about that? Uh, and you can't just say, well, you're a professional athlete and you know a whole bunch of professional athletes. This study has to be replicable. Uh, so I spent a great deal of time on my, my recruiting and sampling strategies. Uh, and to do that, I leveraged um, basically cold calling and leveraging players associations. Um, I wanted, because I was using my, my methodology is ultimately a, a convenient sampling strategy um, that uses a you know, predictive correlational design. But in order to acquire professional athletes, the, the sampling had to be convenience and snowball. It's very difficult to do a, a, you know, a random sampling uh, experimental design you know, that stands up to the scrutiny of, of quantitative research with professional athletes. So it does stand as a limitation. But in order to get ahead of that as much as possible, you know, I wanted to have the associations be able to disseminate the research opportunity to athletes. Um, so my first strategy was, was leveraging some relationships within those PAs, demonstrating to them the value this research may have to support their athlete development initiatives and their messaging, uh, the benefits that they could have uh, from, from contributing to this research, many of which were, were very open uh, to participating in and very willing to, to support the research. I also leveraged uh, a few other relationships through people who have networks of professional athletes, agents, trainers, coaches, um, were, were other individuals, again, that followed a similar sampling strategy. And then finally, any professional athletes who came into contact with me through those first two plans, uh, I encouraged them that if they were willing and open to it, to share the link to the assessment and opportunity to their peers. So there was a snowball sampling opportunity as well uh, within that. Um, you know, I, the sampling strategy is covered certainly in the research as, as, a, as a limitation. Uh, there could be underlying predispositions that would even, you know, prevent or promote a, a player to, to actually engage in taking the survey. Um, so, you know, the, the study is not without its limitations, but recognizing how difficult this population is to, re uh, to reach and the, limit, the, limit, the limited quantitative research on this population, uh, I think those limitations are were worth it, um, and you know certainly acknowledging them goes one step far, you know farther towards saying this is the beginning, not necessarily the conclusion of this type of research. Absolutely. And Jay, as as you reflect back on on your playing career, uh, the research that you've done, and working with athletes, 
just wondering what are the major gaps that you continue to see in the support and the resources that these athletes are receiving today? So, you know, reflecting back on your 15 year career, your education, and now your present day work. Yeah, there's, there's some consistent gaps. And, you know, it's, Sometimes I think it's just a nature of how these the programs are delivered, programmatic delivery in general and in the elite sports space. But the need for individualized uh, programming is critically important, especially as you move into the professional athlete realm, uh, because these individuals have unique opportunities, have unique access to resources and networks of people. They're not inherently interested, perhaps, in you know a four-year you know undergraduate degree from a, you know a generic institution. Um, so you have to be very mindful of that individualized approach. And it's critically important as well is that part of the reason why there may be limited engagement is, is the athlete orientation as well. Uh, many athletes I've found through my work, and you know, uh, I can generalize probably quite accurately, is that they tend to lack a self-starting nature. Uh, you know, we've largely been conditioned from a very young age to be responsive, and it's actually what makes us very coachable. Uh, but just expecting us to know what we want to do and when we want to do it and how we're going to do it uh, is an expectation that is probably uh, not helpful because that actually needs to be developed first. You know, helping athletes actually gain, you know, that initiative or self-starting. Uh, the, the, the adage I use, I always call it, you know, acting sua sponte, uh, you know, act of one's own volition. It's something that's heavily lacking in, in sport. And sometimes disguised in athletes' determination and, and discipline and competitiveness, their willingness to do uh, anything to be successful. And it doesn't really come from a self-starting, intrinsic, mo- intrinsically motivated place. It comes from, well, if you do that, you'll be successful, um, which is very much externally provided. So um, those two things, the lack of recognition of, of, of what, what an athlete is, where they're at, to use a, a great sports term, where they're actually at, where they're coming to this program, and then having the flexibility and dexterity to meet that athlete at that point becomes a difficult part in creating meaningful engagement that the athlete actually values. And I think I would love to kind of get your, you know, obviously you've, you've, you've kind of been spinning gold here, Jay. What, what are some other key takeaways from your research that you think our people really need to understand? Um, and then where do you think the field's going to go, uh, just broadly speaking, in athlete development. But I think first, really, what do you want people to really understand about your research, what it found, and how it can be uh, applied and have an impact? And then let's maybe talk a little bit about where you think the field is going in general. Yeah, happy to share the results. Um, they, were, they were quite uh, substantive and uh, eyebrow-raising for, for a number of people in the field. So my research found that in a, in a sample of, of 72 professional athletes in North America, that athlete, athletic identity and career engagement significantly predict mental well-being, so much so that it actually accounts for about 27% of the variance in their mental uh, well-being scores, athlete identity and career engagement. And individually, how each factor contributes to their mental well-being is we see a huge bump career engagement, there's a huge positive association, right? Um, the, the, sta- the standard beta, beta coefficient for those data people is like 0.432 for, uh, for career engagement. Those athletes who are engaged outside of their sport in career development behaviors uh, score statistically significantly higher in their mental well-being than those who do not. 
We also found uh, a less uh, powerful relationship, but we saw a negative relationship between athletic identity and mental well-being. So those athletes who had higher athletic identity uh, tended to score lower in their mental well-being at the professional level. So the real value in this, this research, this investigation ultimately contributed to a, like that undocumented relationship between a professional athlete's athlete engagement and mental well-being. That's the one we're talking about. That's how we can move towards the performance bump associated with the athlete development, right? Well-being contributes to performance. Those who are doing well, thinking well, feeling well, perform well. Um, and we can see from this particular uh, study, while it's certainly not causal, it's only observational, that those who tend to be doing more outside the game tend to be doing better from a mental well-being perspective. Uh, I think that's the critically powerful part. I think the other part I'd like to add is not actually in my dissertation because I was doing, you know, a very specific, you know, research design and questions, but athlete identity is a very unique uh, scale and it has a number of factors within it, three specifically as well. Uh, and I was able to look at the dimensions and the factors of athlete identity and, and which ones are most responsible for that relationship, that negative relationship. And not surprisingly, uh, just for those listening, just a, a quick reminder, the athlete identity is the, there's a social component. There's an actual what you identify and how people see you. There's a social exclusivity component to athletic identity. All of my friends and peers are athletes. And then there's a negative affectivity component, right? How my emotional affect is ultimately impacted by my performance. Uh, and, you know, not surprisingly, uh, but very uh, validating is that it's that particular aspect of athletic identity that is most associated with poor mental well-being is that negative affectivity, right? It doesn't account for the entire part of mental well-being because mental well-being just isn't the absence of feeling bad. It's also about feeling good. So when we, we see that and we, we, we contemplate that, you know, we can start to see that athlete, uh, that career engagement rather, may start to buffer some of that negative affectivity as we start to expand the model and see, well, how does this relate together? How do you accrue resources through career engagement? Jay, can I quickly stop you there? Just to explain maybe when you say negative affectivity, just so everyone's clear, what exactly are you referring to when you're saying that the negative affectivity of someone's AI score? Sure. So negative affectivity is simply a measure of, of how uh, our mood and general feelings are impacted by our performance in sport, right? I play bad. I feel bad. I get hurt. I feel bad. Uh, I play good. I feel great, right? You know, that roller coaster that I kind of articulated from my individual experience, right, reflects how attached I was to, the, to my, my affectivity or my mood, my emotional tone uh, was tied to the outcomes of sport. Right. So we see that athletes who have a, that, that sense of detachment and are able to buffer that tend to do better. Uh, and those who have career engagement and can buffer that do much better. Um, so you start to see this synergistic reciprocal effect. Um, and we saw that in, in the post hoc analysis, which I think is really cool. We thought about the future. And again, the more conceptual understanding is that the career engagement really provides resources that mitigate some of that risk. And one of the things as well, I think, is, is Maybe the most powerful that's not, it's not even in the, you know, the 250 pages of my dissertation, but <laughs> there is no correlation between athletic identity and career engagement in my study. So athletes who were really, really high in career engagement, there was no relationship to a low athletic identity. The, the correlation was 0 0.017, which is basically nothing. Interesting. So really interesting. you can be fully vested 
in an athletic identity, you can be all in as an athlete and still be involved in career engagement activities and be functioning and thriving very well. There is no conflict uh, there for a number of individuals at the professional level. Um, so it debunks that myth that I have to borrow from column A to fill column B. It's all the same. So the idea of, of oh, we have to fracture this guy's athletic identity is, is a complete falsehood. Uh, based on the observation I saw in, in professional athletes, um, that may happen, uh, but it's probably because of some sort of self-belief around the nature of that. There are a number of athletes who are living the opposite of that and living very well. Um, what people may believe and how that informs their well-being and their behavior and their beliefs could be something completely different as that social conditioning may program. Uh, but my research suggests that there are a number of athletes living outside that paradigm and doing quite well by it. And, and I think, you know, as you, know, you Steph, and I have talked about previously, I think this is an unbelievable finding. I think it's particularly relevant because it's coming at the major professional level. So the fact that we kind of get this snapshot of what's going on with this population, I think, is, is really critical because, like you said, there's definitely an analog to a collegiate athlete, but there's also some pretty significant differences. So the fact that you were able to get this data and the information that it kicked back to you, I think, is absolutely fascinating. And I think it's a potentially a real touchstone for, for the field. And in that regard, I kind of wanted to ask you, where, where do you see the field going now based on your experiences as a professional athlete? now kind of having your academic hat on and, and going through your research experience, where do you think the field is going or, or where do you think it should go? Yeah, I think the field is largely moving. And I think if you look, you know, in Europe and Australia, it's already going this way a little bit more than in North America. But this is becoming a holistic development and performance tool, right? This is becoming part of that pie. You know, you have your nutritionist, you have you know, your strength and conditioning coach, you have your mental performance coach, um, and then you also have this piece of the pie as well, right? This is something that athletes are beginning to see more and more the opportunity to use it and actually connect to real world uh, interests and games for them, right? They're seeing that they can actually make a difference in their communities on the world stage with causes that they, they actually care about. Uh, and a number of them, they're high performing people. They just don't want to go into a room and say, well, I'm the hockey player or I'm the basketball player. Now I'm a part of this. No, they actually want to know some stuff and contribute meaningfully. That's, you know, the gift of, of being an athlete your entire life. You want to contribute meaningfully to whatever causes you believe in or whatever you're a part of. So athletes are seeing that. And, you know, as this happens more and more, we can start to reflect on how this helps you in all aspects of your life. We're going to slowly shift that culture. We're going to shift the idea. We're going to see that it's not going to have as much resistance. We're going to be able to overcome some of that and shift the paradigm towards the performance enhancing and well-being approach and that this is part of a continued, you know, holistic athlete career development model um, that, you know, serves the athlete beginning, middle, end of the athlete chapter of their life and then supports the ongoing development into the, into the next chapters and beyond. Now, I appreciate that answer. Steph, anything else from you? Yeah, Jay, you had stated that the greatest performers tended to exhibit high levels of self-awareness. What are some ways that athletes can increase their levels of self-insight and self-awareness? Um, yes. Well, self-awareness is an interesting one. Uh, I do believe at times ignorance is bliss. I've seen uh, far too many self-aware people for their own good. Uh, I might be one of them. <laughs> so Thinking uh, too much, right? Just thinking too yeah, much. A healthy dose of awareness, um, I, I think it is critically important and 
and using opportunities. That's where, that's where mentorship is so important. That's where I think athlete development people can make the most impact. And, you know, it speaks to the leadership of our field. And, you know, I'm reminded of what leadership means to me. And maybe I'll share that with some of the, the people listening. But my job as a leader is to see something in someone else that is there, but they don't see it yet. And then stay with that process until it becomes a reality to it fully acclimated, right? That's, that's the potential that athlete development specialists can see in their athletes who may only see themselves in a certain way right now or have only been reflected back to them in a certain way their entire life. Kick a ball, right? Throw a ball, right? Jump, whatever it might be. We have the opportunity to see something else. We have something to see spe- something special in them that's in them. And, and we have the ability to help cultivate that. And uh, that's where that self-awareness, where you can start to reflect mirrors, right? The, the, the best therapists, the best coaches, the best trainers, they just hold mirrors up all the time and help people make sense of that reflection back to them and shape that reflection. And, and that's what I think is, is the powerful part of self-awareness. It's, it's not self-awareness because if you don't know yourself, you, know, you don't know anything because there are a lot of, of, of blissful, ignorant people who live very happy lives. And there are a lot of very unhappy people who know far too much about themselves. Um, so finding that balance is important, but critically getting into those, those values, those core beliefs, um, are incredibly important, not just for self-awareness, but for self-acceptance and, and building that self-efficacy and meaning in everything we do, extrapolating that value, the value of who we are from, from our performance in sport to our approach to our life, to you know, how we engage our community, how we engage other people, how we raise our families. Um, all of those aspects, I think, you know, are in the hands of athlete development specialists. You have the ability to make that impact on an athlete's life. And, it's a very special opportunity. Couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's probably a phenomenal place uh, to put a bow on it. Stephanie, thank you again for joining us today. Pleasure. And on behalf of our global partners, many thanks to uh, Dr. Jay Harrison for walking through his research and giving us his insights into the world of athlete development. Thanks a ton, Jay. Thank you, guys. I appreciate the conversation. Looking forward to the next summit. Hopefully it's going to be live and in person sooner than later. Fantastic. But again, thanks again, Jay. Thanks, Steph. We'll chat soon. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm.